0: Welcome to the weekly edition of ESG Now, where we explore the natural environment, our society, and a company's governance structure through the lens of the weekly news. I'm your host, Mike DiCibato, and this week, Megan Eastman and Rick Marshall join me in studio to discuss SoftBank and the passionate love of wild founders. And then we get two quick takes on the responsibility of P.E. and venture capitalists and the streaming wars. Thanks, as always, for joining us. Stay tuned. Okay, our long story today is on idealistic company founders because much has happened in that realm since the near collapse of the office space company we work. For one thing, an investment vehicle called the Vision Fund was pulled into the spotlight and what is the Vision Fund, you ask? Well, it is an investment vehicle owned by a company called SoftBank, and it has nearly $100 billion in U.S. currency, $28 billion of which is provided by SoftBank, and actually, weirdly, $45 billion is from Saudi Arabia's public investment fund. And it could take that $100 billion and it can heave it onto private companies. The vehicle's lead is also the lead at SoftBank, and his name is Masayoshi-san, or Masa to all his friends out there. And Masa is the founder's founder. His method, as quoted by the FT, is to look for entrepreneurs who have the greatest vision to solve the unsolvable. The need to have the strongest passion, and then he provides the cash to quote-unquote fight. I don't know why it has to be framed as a fight, but basically the reason this happens is because the Vision Fund is this kind of venture capital vehicle that SoftBank has spun off. It still controls it, and it just goes around and it makes bets on companies they think are going to change the world. SoftBank itself actually started as a telecom company, and then it morphed into this holding company that had these grand aspirations, as you can tell with Masa's idea of a good CEO. And Masa and SoftBank killed it early with a stake in Alibaba before everyone else had one, and a stake in Yahoo Japan, one of Japan's top internet firms. But then when Masa started to make bets with the Vision Fund, he ran into some trouble. WeWork is the obvious case, but there's also Uber that they put a lot of money into, and then after its IPO, it has really dropped, and a dog walking app called Wag, which is just not being a good boy, if you'll excuse the pun, And people have kind of criticized Masa for making these huge bets and not really knowing where the company is going and not having the right structures in place to deal with these type of big bets in all these different kind of industries because it even invests in like biotechnology companies. But as we do at this time, I have to do a stat card digression before I get into the story's heft. Because remember, we rank companies based on their exposure on ESG risks on a triple C to a triple A scale. And SoftBank is rated at a triple B. The Vision Fund is a private vehicle, so it's actually not rated. So what does this all mean? Well, because of the WeWork debacle, SoftBank has been under pressure to prove to its investors that it can actually handle all these wild bets. And while it announced it would continue to add to its WeWork portfolio, it decided it would implement some governance systems to deal with the stress when it invests in these private companies. And I'm not going to list them all, but they include a guaranteed seat for SoftBank on the company's board and a drafting of a board-certified CEO exit plan for any company they invest in so, you know, an Adam Newman type doesn't walk away with billions while thousands are laid off. And this is where we get to the big part of the story, the ESG portion of the story, because as I'll explain later, the G or governance part of ESG is a big deal. And this is good governance praxis. But it is also, to me, it sounds like SoftBank is trying to rein in its adventurous CEO. But Megan, I hear you do not think that this is such a big deal.
1: Well, does he really have to rein himself in or is he just feeling like he got burned and so now he's stepping back a little bit? I'll be curious to see whether this really lasts or whether he finds himself kind of tempted back in, as so many investors are to these guys with visions that sound compelling. Yeah, but won't this
0: sort of hamper the Vision Fund's ability to make these wild bets and thus its existence? Like, if you have to stop concussions at the National Football League in America, you'll likely have to stop playing football because concussions are just part of the game, apparently. So isn't limiting the Vision Fund's ability to make wild bets like canceling the Vision Fund?
1: I didn't hear anything in there that would really restrict them from throwing money at a firm with a visionary founder who's still got a controlling interest. It just kind of puts up some guardrails. So you get these visionary founders, and some people argue which ones are truly visionary and and which ones are just oddballs. But I think you, you probably have to break it down a little bit more than that, because you do get the ones who kind of go off on their own weird tangents. And sometimes that's okay, because the main business is really strong. And then you get the ones like, uh, what's his name at Overstock, who end up driving the company into the ground because they're they're off so much on a tangent and not paying attention to the main business that's supposed to be the moneymaker. So I think it's not just binary you really actually have to look at the particular business and the particular person. What do you think Rick? I,
2: all firms start out as founder firms. I mean, you know look at some of the biggest corporations in, in the world today and there are individuals who a century back started those and were, were they crazy founders? In some cases they were, um, but they were enormously successful. I'm interested in this Rick, because you say this all the time.
0: And usually use Heinz as the example, but the new founders today seem like a different breed than Heinz was, where they view their companies as conscious, changing entities. And to give you some examples, I wrote down some of the mission statements of these quote-unquote disruption companies. They're not exact, but Lyft wants to be unique and uplift others, and it wants to improve people's lives. Lyft drives people around. They're not doing anything other than that. Facebook wants to connect the world. I guess in a way they're doing that Google wanted to do no evil, but then it just wanted to make information more accessible, which seems more relatable. I mean, at least Amazon cops to just wanting to be the Earth's most consumer-centric company by giving them stuff. It just seems like in 2019, there are all these companies that position themselves as providing a public service, kind of, but are really just far-fetched ideas hatched in a Silicon Valley ooze which seems different than what Heinz was trying to do, for example.
2: That's one. Ford, Ford Motor Company is another example. And you, you don't think those founders were thinking about changing the world? What company changed the world more than Ford, Ford Motor Company? And it wasn't because they, they were making cars. It's because they, they created the assembly line approach to building cars. They changed the world. They literally changed the world. And those founders were visionaries, and they were very conscious of it. There's nothing new under the sun here. I I I will maintain that.
1: I I think the guys you're talking about are really just responding to the zeitgeist currently you know, in Silicon Valley. That that this is what they're swimming in, and so therefore this is how they're talking.
2: There definitely is some of that, you know, and I and I and I've seen it in in my lifetime with the the dot com bubble so so maybe this generation is being particularly vocal, but at the same time they they are some of them literally are changing the world. Um I think the jury is still out on WeWork as a company. They've been enormously successful on some levels. There are issues there for sure. Will those get straightened out? We we don't know. Um but an important lesson from what's happened with WeWork to Date is that the the visionary founder um that's going to have a potentially negative impact on the firm is susceptible to being called called out by the public markets. And you know that pushback is is very powerful too. so let let's not just let's not focus entirely on runaway visionaries. Let's focus on the context within which they're operating and and let's face it, we need the world to change right now.
0: Yeah, definitely, but I, I want shifts that don't come with unnecessary collateral damage due to a lack of humility which is a a statement I'm going to springboard off of uncontrollably (laughs) into a broader question of governance and control because governance is really, in my opinion, at the heart of a lot of ESG. You can't have good social and environmental policies if you don't have a good management team to enforce those policies. They'll just be pieces of paper. And you, Rick, you wrote a piece with Alan Brett of our ESG research team that looks at the outsized control given to founders when they use an equity share class that can give them, for example, 10 times more voting power than a common shareholder, usually through the use of a thing called the dual share class structure, where the commoners get one type of share and the founders get another more powerful powerful type of share. And Alan actually has this great chart that shows a linear progression line measuring percentage of voting power for the amount of capital you invest into a company if you're a shareholder. And to me, it feels nice because I want a dollar that I give to give me a dollar's worth to say. But is that what we uh, as a society wants? Or, Or no, is it not? Because if Megan's point holds that there needs to be nuance when looking at founder control, then reconcile this for me because there is a credible hypothetical out there that says, well, whether or not you have a controlling founder doesn't really matter for a company's long-term performance.
2: Yeah. Well, I'm not trying to reconcile it, to tell you the truth. I mean, our goal is to measure it. Our goal is to make the information available so that investors can look at each individual situation and make a determination. Um we're watching trends. We are well understand that there are many investors who would rather see one share, one vote be mandated for all companies. Uh, we're also well aware that many uh, private equity investors that are bringing these companies into the public market um, really like these dual class structures. Um, Some of the exchanges are uh, looking at this as a a competitive question. Um, Even the the FT recently wrote a piece uh, looking at the possibility of of the, uh, the UK exchanges perhaps allowing some form of dual class structure because they're losing out on some of these listings to places like Hong Kong. Uh, Singapore has, just in the last couple of years, opened up their market to this. It's a competitive question. Uh, The U.S. exchanges um, are keenly defensive uh, on this question. So um, uh, unless a regulation globally could somehow come into being that would eliminate this, they're not going to go away. So our job is not to reconcile it but to help investors better understand it and to be able to make better decisions when they encounter it.
1: The other day I was having a chat with one of our other governance analysts, um, Sunel Machali, in London, and we're talking about the ways in which for an investor interested in engaging with a firm that a controlling, a disproportionately controlling owner in some circumstances could actually be beneficial if you're, you're able to get their ear. That it's like a lot of bang for the buck with one engagement. The influence doesn't necessarily come just in the hard form of votes. It can also come in the soft form of persuasion.
2: Uh, We've certainly seen instances where um, controlling founders have been very receptive to the voice of minority shareholders. Um, after all, this is the essence of the public market is that kind of engagement and dialogue.
0: Direct engagement being when shareholders actually dialogue with companies in private, on the phone, or in person, which we've spoken a lot about on this podcast. But let's let's quickly bring this back to SoftBank and the vision fund it is associated with.
2: The biggest criticism that I've heard of SoftBank is, is that they've thrown capital at uh, what they regarded as solutions that ended up being really disruptive and didn't work. And th- then they, they withdraw the capital and they leave behind them, you know, a broken local and, uh, e- economy. That's a that's a symptom of our times. These are really, really difficult times with a lot of disruption going on. And to the extent that they're making, uh, let's call it easy capital, available to those kinds of situations, that that could potentially be a problem.
0: I mean, that- Doesn't that seem like an unintended consequence of of wantonly throwing around cash? You guys ever hear about the Fry Festival? Because it reminds me totally of that. Well, there was this music festival that these guys tried to put on, and they got all these local vendors to provide labor and services and products, and they couldn't pay them, and they never did pay them because the founders were unable to deliver on what they promised and actually got arrested. But the community was still economically troubled by it, and arrest doesn't fix that. And I don't want to be moralistic, but isn't this something we have to look at as part of ESG? How large some of monies distributed around the world are going to affect the market and the people that live within that market?
1: So I think we mostly look at that at the level of the companies that are actually having the operations that may or may not be disruptive locally and, and whether they're looking at that and trying to identify the risks and manage them. But if we think of it at the investor perspective, there are more and more places where they're starting to have to... Disclose what's going on on ESG issues, or meet certain ESG criteria in order to get the financing, or to get a better rate, or whatever. So it's coming into lending as as well as the capital markets.
2: Where we where we look at ESG at that level, um, from an investor perspective, is when we look at financial services companies, and SoftBank is not a financial services company. The mechanism whereby we would associate ESG concerns with the assets of a financial services company don't come into play here.
0: All right, so Rick's point is taken, but that doesn't mean I have to listen to it. So I brought in Kevin Kwok, who worked in PE and worked at credit companies, and I posed the same question to him. Well, shouldn't we look at a company, how they isn't part of ESG, looking at how a company affects its environment, the society it is operating in, as well as the governance structure that provides the company with the mechanisms needed to run? So can I say, like, look, all these companies that are giving funding, all these VC companies, all these PE companies that are putting money into a system, and then that system, for one reason or another is overweighted, overburdened, or there's too much capital or there's an irresponsible founder that isn't put into check.
2: But, th- but that's also why it's important to understand that VCs and PEs are very different from the public equity market. You go into investing a PE and VC because you know there is that high risk, high reward. And you actually just mentioned that, you know, why would someone throw around money and start investing in an irresponsible CEO? Well, how do you know they're irresponsible? these companies have just recently started. You have a track record from these public equity companies. They have required disclosures and mandatory financial requirements that they actually have to produce every single year. On the private equity side and the venture capital side, you don't have that. You have maybe at most you know, six months to like three years of actual financial data from these companies before they actually even go out and get kind of seed funding. So in the end, it's like comparing apples and oranges.
0: All right then, fine. I am mistaken. And now on to C.U. Liu, my colleague that covers the media and entertainment industry for MSCI ESG Research, for a quick take on the streaming wars. Now that Disney Plus has made itself available to great fanfare.
3: Rather, call it a streaming war. I, I, I think it's more like a race, because um, you can't. They're not really cutting each other by price. Um, they're competing on basically whoever can be the primary um, gateway platform for for UNI's entertainment uh, in the living room. Um, and whoever has the largest content base or largest content brand is gonna be benefiting from that. And and only the ones have large content brand has a chance of competing with Netflix, which is uh, you know, the, the established incumbent.
0: Yeah, no one's streaming with, uh, no one's going to sign with Apple TV because they don't have any content for you to watch. You also wrote something really quick on the privacy and data security Mm -hmm. and the issues with all these streaming companies getting everybody's data. What was that again?
3: Content producers used to be uh, just licensing everything to distributors so that they don't really have a direct relationship with consumers. They do not have um, access to consumer data the way that Facebook and YouTube has. Um, But now they are, once they have their own platform, they deal with consumer personal data, uh, financial data to some extent, and also, most importantly, the consumer behavior and their taste, their preferences.
0: Oh, so what's the problem with that?
3: The the problem with that is um, you also don't know whether the media entertainment companies are Uh, equipped to protect your data we don't from based on our research most of them are not prepared to have that kind of cozy relationship with consumer data
0: And on that note, I am off to go give Disney Plus all my data and information so I can just watch The Mandalorian for a month. So I'll see you next week. I wanted to give a big shout-out to Megan Eastman, Rick Marshall, C.U. Liu, Kevin Kwok for all your help today on this podcast. And thank you so much for listening. I always appreciate it. If you like what you heard, please rate and review us. I am always trying to improve and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Talk to you soon, and have a great rest of the week.